Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam. In the day when they were created, And Adam lived a hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. The days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were eight hundred years and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years and he died. Shall we pray? Father, we are thankful for your presence among us today. And because you're here, Lord God, we turn to you and ask that you would anoint us and bless us with your Holy Spirit. We realize, Lord, our need to understand all of your word according to you and according to your heart according to your wisdom and understanding. And so, as we come to your instruction, may we, Lord, be attentive, and may we grow in grace, in knowledge, and understanding. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I find it quite interesting that in the minds of some people, The most boring, mind-numbing, and tiresome thing uh, about the scriptures is its genealogies. We get to a bunch of names that most of us say we can't pronounce anyway, and we're going to say, you know, that's just kind of boring. There are those who like to call them the begats. One person begats a child. That child grows and begats his own child, and the process continues until we have accumulated seven billion begats. And who knows how many other billions before these seven billion are present. Maybe, maybe it's because they don't really read the genealogies that makes them think that they're boring. And yet some of these very same people will scour pages upon pages of stock quotations all in fine print, I might add, or sports sections reading with some great understanding the batting averages or ERAs of their favorite baseball players, but they won't read these genealogies. Boring. We have to remember that those boring genealogies were placed by God in the Bible for a reason. And thus are a part of the revelation given to us by by the Apostle Paul himself in 2 Timothy 3.16. When he says all scripture, all scripture including genealogies, all scripture. By the way the word all is a, a very small word but it means a big thing doesn't it? All means all. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction 
in righteousness. You see, in, the, in other words, these names are given to us here with great purpose. Take, for example, back in chapter 4, we read a small genealogy between Cain all the way to Lamech, a seventh, the seventh generation from Adam. From Cain and Enoch, his son, and then the others down to Lamech. Very short genealogy. But when we studied it, we realized every name meant something. And it was telling the story of the ungodly line of Cain. Significant. So these genealogies are not just exercises in patience and endurance through suffering. And it may interest those who like collecting signatures and autographs that this first part of chapter 5 of Genesis consists of the first man, Adam's signature or autograph. We find Adam's signature here. In the first part of verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. This is the book. In essence, what it's saying is this is the book of Adam. This is the book of Adam. From Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. For God, or in the beginning God, created the heaven and the earth. From Genesis 1 verse 1 to Genesis 2 verse 3. We read the account of the history of creation, of course. The things that no one witnessed. And yet it was given by revelation to Adam and then to Moses. It was given to Adam. And then it was given to Moses. But from Genesis 2 verse 4 to the point where we are today here in Genesis 5 verse 1, we have Adam's account. We are given Adam's account. This is his signature, you see. This is his autograph. His genealogy. His descendants, his story, his book. Almost immediately from this point on, as, as, as if Adam puts down his own pen, Noah's history, recorded history, begins. We'll see a lot more of that next, next week. But here in verses 1 and 2, we see this history recounted for us again. This is the book of the generations of Adam. What is different now is that we're leading up to the line of Adam through Seth that will go through David and eventually to Jesus Christ. And so it says this is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man. In the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And so we see the beginning now of the first godly genealogy listed in the Bible. Remember Cain's was an ungodly genealogy. So here is the first godly genealogy, the first roots of the earth's godly heritage. We talked about this last week as, as two humanities side by side. So here we have the first godly genealogy. How do we know this? Well, the first man upon earth, Adam, who was a godly man, 
is listed in this genealogy. But in the second man, Cain, he's not listed. Why? Because Cain was an ungodly man. So this is how we know that this is a godly genealogy. At least one of the first things that teaches us this is a godly genealogy. Secondly, the son of Adam who is listed is, is Seth. Verse 3. The son of Seth who is listed is Enosh in verse 6. And these sons were the godly descendants of Adam. The seed that God had appointed and set in place. Remember, Seth's name meant appointed and set in place. And a whole lot of other things. But they all were, were working together to show us that God had placed Seth now as the one through whom the line of Messiah would come. So these sons were the godly descendants of Adam, the seed that God had appointed and set in place, and through whom God had promised to send a Savior. That's how we know that this is a godly genealogy. But thirdly, the author of Genesis, who we believe to be Moses, is very aware of the seed promised by God. He's already mentioned the seed in Genesis 3.15, when it talks about the seed of the woman, the singular seed of the woman being, of course, the Messiah. And he knows about God's promise to Abraham, that Abraham was to bear the seed through whom the Savior would come. The writer knows that this line of godly persons will ultimately run to Abraham and that God will then reaffirm his promise of the godly seed and Savior to said Abraham. Now, here's something uh, interesting to consider. The record of Cain's descendants in Genesis chapter 4 ends with the deeds of Lamech, who was in the seventh generation from Adam. Now, from the chronologies of chapter 5, it is evident that Adam died during the lifetime of Enoch. Not the Enoch that is Cain's son. The Enoch that is in the line down a few generations from Seth. So Adam died during the lifetime of Enoch who was also in the generation from Adam. But this suggests something to us. It does suggest something to us. That, that Adam still kept up with Cain and his descendants, as long as he lived. Even though Cain had walked away from the Lord and his own family, Adam continued to keep in touch with what was going on with Cain. And that reminds me of something. It reminds me of the heart of the prodigal father, the father of the prodigal son. The kind of heart that says, you know, my son was, was born into the knowledge of, of the truth of God. Into the knowledge of the truth that we are sinners and we need a savior. They were, he was born into this knowledge. He chose to go away. And in the life of the prodigal son, what do we see? We see a father who daily waits, who daily prays, who daily seeks the return of his son. I can assure you that Cain was thought of by Adam every day. I can assure you that Adam bore a tremendous amount of burden, whether in guilt or, or just in the fact that here 
you know, because of his fall, now his sons were, were, were stained with sin. But Cain, Cain went way beyond, didn't he? He, he, he? he killed his own brother. Never really repenting of it. Never really giving up his heart to God. Never asking God for forgiveness. Just packing up and going. Wanting a new fresh start, a new beginning. But the beginning for Cain, as we saw, was one of separation from God. Rejection of God. A renouncement of God. So how much like the prodigal father was was Adam? Just a thing to think about. And then think about this. How long did he keep that particular thought? Adam didn't live to be 79 years old or 80. He lived to be 930 years old. It's a lot of days to wait for a son to return. As far as we know, he never did. Another thing to note before we go on is that this is not a list of all the godly people upon earth, of course. It is the list of only the godly line through whom the promised seed, the Savior, the Messiah, would come. There were certainly other godly persons upon earth, at least up until Noah's time. Each of the descendants mentioned in the godly genealogy are said to have had other sons and daughters. We can certainly know that back back in the time of Cain and Abel that there had to be other sons and daughters. Because where would Mrs. Cain have come from? Of course it had to have come from uh, either a sister or, or... or some other relative of that time. And many of them, of course, coming from Adam, would have known and given their life uh, to God. Not just Abel himself. So, there were certainly other godly persons on earth. But each of the descendants mentioned in the godly genealogy are, are said to have had other sons and daughters, so there were other believers One more noteworthy item before we go on. Uh, While Genesis 5 verse 1 contains the the first mention of a book, and this is very significant, that it would mention a book or Bible as the case may be. In the Old Testament, that's where it's mentioned. The the first mention of book in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. So how interesting. The book of the generations of Adam... In Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The word book, or the the reference to book here, does suggest strongly of printing, of something written down. So then we have to believe that Adam, because this is the book of the generations of Adam, was given the wisdom and the wherewithal to be able to write down this book. That's why I say this was his autograph, his signature. So the first book teaches us of the origins of the first Adam. The second book declares, and that would be, of course, the book of Jesus Christ. The second book declares the origins of the last Adam, who is, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47, the Lord from heaven. 
There's Adam, the first Adam, and then there is the second Adam, who is called the Lord from heaven. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Who is it? Jesus Christ. So it's significant that Adam's account is actually a recounting now of man's creation by God. We are being given a recounting of this particular history. Man did not just appear by chance. Adam just didn't appear out of the blue. He didn't just evolve through some freak cosmic accident of nature. And he didn't come from some random evolutionary process. No, these, uh, this was the, the plan and the purpose of God. There was plan. There was purpose behind man's appearance on earth. It was the plan and the purpose of Almighty God to create man. It was the plan and the purpose of Almighty God to create man. As we emphasized so many times before, since we started our study in the book of Genesis, man is the pinnacle, he is the height, he is the summit of God's creation. The height of God's creation is not this globe whether it was all water or when the land appeared, certainly there was some beauty in it all because God created it. It wasn't so much what was on land as far as the plants and the vegetations and the herbs and the, and, and the fruit and all of that. That was beautiful, even though I'm sure it was. Probably the most beautiful this earth has ever been. It wasn't the height of God's creation. The animals that were created and placed upon the earth and the, the fish of the sea that were placed in the water, the birds of the air that were flying through, as, as beautiful as all of these animals are to us. This wasn't the height of his creation. It wasn't the firmament of the heavens or the canopy that surrounded the earth or it wasn't the heavens themselves. It wasn't the stars or the planets or the sun that was the pinnacle of his creation. God did all of that by speaking it into existence. Light be and light was. But this wasn't the pinnacle of his creation. The pinnacle of his creation was man. On the sixth day. Taken out of the dust of the ground. Created by the very hand of God. The climactic creation of God. Why is it so high? Because man was created in the image of God. You see, long before the earth was ever made, the Lord God planned and purposed man eternally, and in particular, those he calls. As hard as it is for us to understand this, God knew you before the foundations of the world. I can't even begin to fathom that thought. Before God created the heavens and the earth, he knew you. Paul says it in Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And can you even think for just a moment what it means that God, even, though, even when he 
knew us before the world was created, knew us that we should be holy and that we should be blameless before him in love. I tell you this, if that God who knew us before we were even you know, born, before this world was ever created, wouldn't you say that he would care very much that we right now would be holy and blameless before him in love? Quite a consideration, isn't it? God made man in the likeness of God. He created man with the highest dignity and nature possible. This means that man was created just like God. How? He was created just like God in perfection, in holiness, in love, and in spirit. When Adam was created, he was created perfect. Because the perfect God created him. When Adam was created, he was created in holiness, separate unto God. Separated unto God, set apart for God. When Adam was created, he was created in love. God wasn't making toys so he could play with them. He wasn't creating things so he could buy, you know, pass his time. When God created, he created in love because with love comes plan and purpose. And when God created Adam, he created him in spirit. You see, he created him with something whereby God could communicate with him, whereby God could have fellowship with him and he with God. Created him in spirit. The Bible tells us that God is spirit. And we that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And then we're told that God created both male and female. We, we talked about this, of course, back in chapter 1, but that was a long time ago. Maybe we need a refresher course. Gee whiz, male and female. Why did God do that? Because God was establishing a standard. He made man and woman different for a reason. And then he said, man and woman, male and female. This is his standard for marriage. Always has been, will, always will be. No matter what man tries to say, no matter what man tries to do. And his standard for marriage was God's idea, God's plan, God's purpose. For what reason? To love, to comfort, and to support each other. Even in the book of Malachi, it talks, it refers to the companionship that a man is to have with his wife. Friendship. You know, if more couples would get together based upon friendship rather than upon, you know, physical factors or rather than upon the, you know, the lust of the flesh. Listen, if we just become friends, we'd have better marriages. Think about that for a moment. We know companionship goes far beyond just the physical. To love, to comfort, support each other, to carry on the human race. This was a commandment that God gave them. That can only happen between male and female. And then there is, of course, 
their call to work and to subdue the earth. As a matter of fact, let's go there. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. Because God blessed the man and the woman there. God blessed them, it says. God blessed them, the man and the woman. The male and the female. Adam and Eve. God blessed them. He blesses this union. He blesses the standard. God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. The work and submission given by God to man and woman. But going back to our text, if you, if you, if you look there at, uh, at verse 2, notice this. He blessed them in conjunction to what we just read in Genesis 1 verse 28. He blessed them, but then it says in verse 2 that God called, uh, that God, uh, uh, called them Adam. Call them Adam. Male and female. Adam and Eve. The man and the woman. He called them Adam. Adam. And as we learned earlier in our study of Genesis, the word for Adam means simply man, but it means man of the earth. More literally, red earth. The man of red earth. Certainly at some time, you know, the, 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 the soil was so rich, you know, was, with nutrients that God had given, you know, it was deep red earth. And good red earth, you know, grows some pretty good stuff, from what I understand. I don't see much around here. <laughs> Not much red earth around here. But nonetheless, the understanding of the word is seen in its context. So he's not calling Adam and Eve Adam so that he can call Adam, Adam, and Eve Adam. <laughs> no, it's a male and female, but he calls them Adam together. Why? Well, the understanding, again, is context. Certainly here it is speaking of the human race. He's using the word mankind in essence. You are mankind. So please understand this, ladies, this is, you know, with all due respect to you. There's mankind, there's not womankind. Because there's already male and female. He's talking about the race. The race of man. Paul would have put it this way, and he did, actually, in one of his letters. The man came first and then the woman. But that, of course, speaking of, of, of order and all. But, but nonetheless, it isn't here given to be seen as sexist or gender-biased to call humanity by the general heading of man or mankind. It's none of those things. Simply the Lord himself just said, you're mankind. You're the whole race. Male and female. Simple to understand. Man likes to take things like this and say, oh, look at, look at all the sexism. In it. Please. Learn what the word of God says and you realize what God means. So, the Lord gave this name to be, uh, or to the race for a good reason. There's a good reason for this, you see. It was to be a constant reminder. Uh, don't you like constant reminders? I have to confess something. I don't think we told you last week that the time was going to change this weekend. Normally we do. It just seemed to have passed by us, but we kind of figured something. Well, if we fall back, you're going to get an extra hour of sleep, unless you don't turn your clock back, and then you're going to come to church an hour early. So we figure we're not going to lose out. 
So we, we didn't mention it. But it would have been a good reminder, right? Now, in the, in, in the spring, we do want to remind you, because what happens then, if we don't remind you to change your clocks back, what happens? You come an hour late to church. So reminders are good. Well, here's a reminder from God. By calling us mankind, by calling us man, as far as a race is concerned, it was to be a constant reminder, number one, that they had come from the humblest of origins, from the dust, as well as from his holy hand. That humbles us. That should humble us. Humbles me. That we're just dust. And yet, created by God's holy hand. And the fact of the matter is, that humbles us even more. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. What are you thinking, Lord, about us? Why? Secondly, to call us man was a constant reminder that he alone is God. He alone is God. The only living and true intelligence and power who alone could take, to take dirt and create life. He alone could do that. God alone. Man is never God. Man does not become God. You won't become gods. No matter what some people tell you. You're not little gods. You're man. God alone is God. I am the Lord, he says. I am the Lord God. No one stands beside me who I am. I alone can take dirt and make you into something beautiful. And guess what? No matter what anybody tells you, you're beautiful. Because God made you. You're beautiful. <laughs> Nevertheless, Man was created perfect. He had everything necessary to live both in perfection and for uh, eternity. So this was the first significant event to note in the godly genealogy. That's why it says here what it says. It goes back to the account of man being created by God. But the second is an equally significant event. The second is an equally significant event, and that is what we find in verses 3 through 5 of our text, where it says, And Adam lived 130 years, and begat a son in his own likeness, after his image, and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. You see, Adam now had a son born in his own likeness. In his own image. Now there is a deliberate contrast between the statements found in verse 1 and in verse 3. What does verse 1 tell us? This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man in the likeness of God made he him. In the likeness of God made he him. What does it tell us in verse 3? It says, 
Adam begat a son in his own likeness. Whoa. Distinction. After his image, called his name Seth. So now we see some distinctions between verse 1 and verse 3. Why? Because in verse 1, it tells us that God created Adam in his likeness, in the likeness of God. But in verse 3, it says that Adam begat a son in his own likeness. And the point is this. Seth was a being just like Adam. In the image of Adam. And not in the perfect image of God. Because Adam sinned. You see, and may I say that at least not in the perfect image that man had when God first created Adam. Right after God created Adam, Adam sinned, uh, he fell, Adam experienced what was to be uh, hidden and cut off from God. Remember, he, he, he himself went to hide from God because of his shame. Later on, he's cut off, in a sense, from the garden where he met with God because of the sin. And he was now to die, for he had corrupted the perfect nature that God had originally given him. No wonder Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 7, Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. Don't marvel that I tell you, you must be born again. Of course, Nicodemus was like a little bit, like, what does that mean? Do I need to get back into my mother's womb? And I don't think that he was trying to be you know, facetious or anything. He's trying to understand what Jesus was saying. But the fact of the matter is, when Adam died, we all died. Even though we live physically, we died spiritually. In that sense, we are created after the image of Adam and not after the image of God. Now, I have many times said that we have, you know, that we're created in the image of God, but you know when that is? When we have come to be born again by the Spirit of God into Christ, now we have been restored in that area of the Spirit. We're alive again. Now we're in the image of God. We weren't when we were born. Why? We were only in the image of Adam, who had died spiritually. So let me say this. We were all born wrong the first time. Well, let me explain. <laughs> we were all born wrong the first time because we were born in sin. We were born shapen in iniquity. We were born with Adam's fallen nature, needing to be born again. Needing to be born again. Now, let me say that uh, back uh, in the days of the Jesus movement of the, of the early 70s, that I remember so well. We would tell people about Jesus Christ to say, you know, can, can I speak to you about Jesus? Because you know what? If, if, you, if you haven't come to Christ, you're in sin and, and you need to be born again. A lot of people said, born again? Just like Nicodemus. What, what does it mean to be born again? You know. We have to understand that, you see. Fact of the matter is, you're dead. Spiritually. And to have communion with God the Father, you've got to be alive. If you don't come out of that state of being 
uh, uh, spiritually dead. I mean, you're going to live your life physically up to a certain point. At that, at that point, if you die, when you die and you're still uh, uh, spiritually dead, then you'll be eternally separated from the God who created you and made you. You must be born again. And Jesus really did push, you know, there, there was a, a stress. You must be born again. This is not an option here. If you want to live forever in the beauty of God, in the loveliness of God, in the goodness of God, in, in the place where God is. If, if you want to call it heaven, of course, that's what the Bible calls it. But that, if we want to go to heaven, we need to be born again. It isn't how much we know about God. If I know a lot about God, the first thing some, uh, sometimes people tell me, well, yeah, I know, I know about God. I, and so if, if, if I ask them, well, okay, if you know about God, then what has God made, uh, how has God made provision for you so that you can spend eternity with him? Well, I do good works. Wrong. You know, I mean, then you don't know God. You only know about him, but you don't know about Jesus. And the need for us to receive Christ. Because he died for our sins. The sins in which we were born. Let me put it this way. Psalm 51. Let's go to Psalm 51. Because David points this out to us in his great prayer of repentance. David says in Psalm 51 verses 1 through 6. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Folks, when you read this, you realize something. David did know God. He did know God. He fell, but he knew God. Listen to his prayer. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to, unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He knew he couldn't do it. He knew he couldn't change the circumstances of his life. He tried to change them. Got Bathsheba pregnant. Had to figure out a plan to get rid of her husband. Puts him at the front lines in war. They were worked. You see, when man tries to clear things up, it doesn't work. So he knows. He says, wash me because I can't do it. You alone. Wash me thoroughly clean from my iniquity. Uh, cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions. He also knew he had to confess. Wash me. He says, or acknowledge, I acknowledge my transgressions, my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Why do we want to live our lives with our sins ever before us? I don't know about you, but I don't want to do that. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. And done this evil in thy sight. God sounds to me like Adam and Eve. Like Cain. Can't hide from God. Against thee, the only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. And notice this. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity. David knew I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. You see, David understood. He could not 
save himself. He could not cleanse himself. He sought the God of mercy. The word of God continues to reiterate that need, the necessity of being born again. John writes in his gospel, in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, but as many as received him, speaking of Jesus Christ, the Logos, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of the will of God. Born again. James chapter 1 verse 18 it says of his own will begat he us with a word of truth. There's the begat. Guess what? That's to begat again. To be begotten again. God is the one that causes us to be born again by the way. Of his own will begat he us with a word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. He has caused us to be born again unto a lively or living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Later on in chapter 1 of 1 Peter verse 23, he says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. By the word of God which liveth and abideth forever, by the word of God. This is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I know that sometimes we hear that phrase, you know, if at all possible, go out and preach the gospel and sometimes use words. But you know what? We have to use words. Yes, we need to live our lives so people can see that we're living differently from the world. But here's the thing. We need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is by God's word. Faith cometh by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. We cannot be silent. Cannot be silent. Why would we be here at all if it wasn't for someone telling us about the love of Christ? About the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? About Jesus dying for the sins of men? And then we realizing that's us. So with these things in mind, let's, let's look at one more item of importance that we find in our text. As we get ready to close. Adam lived, uh, verse 3, Adam lived 130 years and begat his, uh, a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And, and the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were, were 800 years and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Now we're going to talk a little bit about his age next week. As a matter of fact, in the next few weeks we're going to be dealing with, with, with uh, the ages that we find in the genealogy. Pretty soon we're going to be dealing with the issue of the, of the age of the earth. We're going to deal with the flood theology because in, when we get to chapter 6 and 7, and we're going to begin dealing with the flood uh, during Noah's time. So we're going to deal with the flood theology, uh, flood geology, but we're also going to deal with dinosaurs too. So that's still up and coming, all right? But we're going to deal with these things. But, but to, for today, we need to just understand this. Verse 5 of our text gives Adam's obituary announcement. I don't think Adam wrote his own obituary. 
Adam's obituary is right here, fulfilling, by the way, the physical aspect of the death sentence that the Lord had pronounced on him. Remember what the death sentence was? Listen to Genesis 3.19. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. Till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Do we understand why we sometimes read those words at a funeral? It's a reminder of something. We are frail people. We are frail men and women. That is the name, by the way, of Enosh, the son of Seth. The frailty of man. It is a constant reminder in that name that Adam sinned and we became frail. And it's also an assurance, by the way, given to all of humanity here as well. And Paul picked up on this in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, when he said, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And when you think of what eternal life is, realize this. If you want God's eternal life, then you must be born again. You must be born again. So as we prepare to come to the table of communion this morning, have we come to grips with these truths? Have we come to grips with the truth of being born again by the Spirit of God? Have we come to grips with the fact that Jesus said you must be born again? This isn't anything to, to play with. This, I mean, this is, this is reality, folks. This is better than reality TV. This is life. And it is a matter of life and death. Are we sure that we're born again of the Spirit of God into Christ Jesus our Lord? Have you received the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord? We're coming to the table of communion now. And I want you all to take a moment. Let's pray.